0: the second episode of Batman Nightcast. I'm Ryan Daly. I'm Chris Franklin. And this time we're talking about Batman issue 401, which is nominally a tie-in to the Legends miniseries event published by DC Comics in 1986. Last time on the show, I'm assuming you listened to episode 1, we covered Batman 400, which we, and I think most people along with us, consider the last Earth-1 Batman story. That is, the last story set firmly in the pre-Crisis on Infinite Earths period. Batman 401, then, should kick off the Dark Knight Detectives' adventures in the new Earth of the post-Crisis era, and it is quite clearly in that world because of its connection to Legends. However, as Chris and I discussed last episode, Batman's characterization after the crisis was not as clear-cut as some others. Superman, for instance, had a hard reboot established by the Man of Steel miniseries, and then a relaunched ongoing series. Wonder Woman's character in history, too, was rebooted with a new series that would debut a few months after this issue that we're covering. Batman, on the other hand, didn't get a hard reboot. His books, Batman and Detective Comics, continued as they were, but with gradual revisions and changes to Batman's personality, his relationship to the first Robin, Dick Grayson, his history with Catwoman, and the origin of the second Robin, Jason Todd. In fact, it would take two or three years to really cement all of the differences between pre- and post-crisis Batman. Before we go on to talk about Batman 401 and how it ties into Legends, we should explain what Legends was all
1: about. Legends was a six-issue miniseries and crossover event, as Ryan said, It was designed by DC as a thematic sequel to Crisis on Infinite Earths, and it was originally conceived as Crisis on Captive Earth, then Crisis of the Soul, before becoming legends, and the creators changed on it too. It was like Paul Levitz and Jerry Ordway at one point, and it being uh, John Ostrander, Len Wein, who had just left the Batman titles as editor, and John Byrne on the art. Uh, It served to firm up the new post-crisis DCU, establishing the new versions of two of DC's biggest heroes, Superman and Wonder Woman. It kind of established how they fit into the new DC universe, and it also provided a backdrop for the end of the original Justice League and a springboard for the new Justice League that would become Justice League International, which you can hear about on the Justice League International Blahaha podcast on the Fire & Water Network. There you go, Shaq. Uh, A new Flash (laughs) series starring Wally West launched. And the Suicide Squad, that we all know from the, the kind of Suicide Squad we've seen in the movie that was comprised of a team of supervillains, launched out of Legends as well. Uh, the plot revolved around DC mega villain Darkseid choosing to undermine the heroes of Earth morally by turning the world's populace against them. He sends his persuasively powered minion, Glorious Godfrey, to Earth as TV pundit G. Gordon Godfrey, who stirs up mankind's innate fears of their super-powered protectors. Actually, the first two issues of Denny O'Neill's editorial run as Batman editor serve as the first two chapters of Legends, even though their connections are somewhat tenacious in parts, which we'll get around to that. For more on Legends, both Ryan and I urge you to check out Michael Bailey's Views from the Long Box podcast, specifically episodes 253 through 256. Over these four extra-sized episodes, Michael explores every chapter of Legends, that's every issue and every crossover issue, with a bevy of special guests, including both myself and Ryan, and our fire and water pals Rob, Shag, and Siskoid.
0: Absolutely, check those episodes out. Particularly the first two episodes of that series, because those are the ones that I'm on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, Chris too. Chris is on episode two, and Chris is on episode four too. So get get a look at those. And episode three, really, there's no reason to listen to that one. I'm boring. Yeah,
1: stuff, just just skip that one. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> So, Legends began the same month as the tie-in issues that we're going to cover on this and the next episode. They were all cover dated November 1986, but according to Mike's Amazing World, they hit the shelves in August that year. And this brings us to a new segment we're going to do every other episode of Nightcast, which we're calling the Spinner Rack segment. Here, we'll talk about some of the other comics released the same month as the issues we're covering, with a focus on issues that are relevant to our topic, or just kind of general. Generally important or interesting. And I want to be clear right from jump that this is a totally original idea. No other podcast has ever had the idea to talk about contemporary comics released the same month as the focus of their show. So if you think we're copying anybody, you are wrong.
1: Uh, uh, Fantastic cast. Uh, From Christ to uh, (laughs) Crisis.
0: Pretty much everything else, (laughs) including, I think, the aforementioned Justice League International. Yes. Yeah. Okay, clearly, what are two of the big issues besides the two Batman books that we're going to be talking about in these issues, the first issue of Legends Dropped... Chris already gave you the creator credits for that. It was plotted by newcomer John Ostrander, scripted by Len Wein, which I always thought was kind of funny. That feels like most books would be the reverse of that. Yeah. Where you'd have the veteran doing like the overall story architecture and a newcomer coming in and planning the dialogue and stuff. But uh, John Byrne penciled the book with Carl Kiesel inking. It looked fantastic, of course. Mm hmm. That same month, Man of Steel, the miniseries that John Byrne was also writing and drawing that rebooted Superman, issues three and four, came out. So John Byrne had three books that he fully penciled on the same, just from DC Comics that same month. And I'll come back to those in a second. Jeez. Other books from DC that came out that month... Roots of the Swamp Thing, issue 5, and I picked that one just because of its connection to my other podcast, Midnight Podcasting Hour. Uh, Roots of the Swamp Thing reprinted issues 9 and 10 of the original Swamp Thing series by Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson, as well as their first Swamp Thing story from House of Secrets, number 92. Also, Secret Origins issue 8 came out that month. That was the issue with Shadow Lass and Dollman. And Watchmen issue 3. Some of you might have heard of the Watchmen comic series. It was kind of <laughs> big for a little while.
1: <laughs> yeah. uh,
0: any other DC comics that you wanted to mention?
1: Well, um, All-Star Squadron number 63 was kind of during that odd period where Roy Thomas had secret origins in both Secret Origins and All-Star Squadron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This has the secret origin of Robot Man. The the question appears in Blue Beetle number six, and Batman editor Denny O'Neill will become the writer of the new question series that will come Soon after this Mm -hmm. doesn't really spin out of this, but this is the first time we actually see the question interacting in the post-crisis. Well, in the DC universe, period, because he was a Charlton character. Uh, He had been in crisis very briefly, but this is the first time we really see him. As far as DC titles, oh, there's Superpowers number three, which I have to mention because big Superpowers toy line fan. This is the third miniseries Most fans will agree it's the lesser of the three. With the second one usually being the one that everybody points to because it has Jack Kirby pencils. This is penciled by Carmine Infantino, and uh, it's just not the same. It's it's just uh, it's missing that spark. It wasn't. uh, It was a really odd, really odd miniseries. Just just it ended in a a strange way and it's really odd that it ran the same time as legends because Darkseid was obviously the main villain of it but it was this really weird storyline where he was like disguised as a hero and it was running the same times as Legends. so if you were reading both it confused the living crap out of you <laughs> so <laughs> so you just gotta got to put that off in its own little you know non-dcu continuity universe but uh yeah, as far as DCs, that's all that I took note of. There's Marvel had an interesting month.
0: It did. It was Marvel's 25th anniversary sort of month, so a lot of their covers had this sort of specific dress on the side where you got a close-up of a character's face and then a bunch of like a little border along the left and right sides and the bottom kind of showcasing like all of their most popular characters at the time.
1: There's some really nice really nice covers in there. Um, mm-hmm. I particularly like the uh, the Black Knight uh, on the Avengers cover yeah. by John Buscema and Tom Palmer and then there's the Arthur Adam Storm on Classic X-Men and right. Steve Lytle does a total Steve Ditko Spider-Man on that Marvel Tales cover. <laughs> yeah. That's that's dead on. I mean, I, for years I thought they just lifted an old piece of Ditko art since Marvel Tales was a reprint title. But it's not. It's Steve Lytle. Yeah. And Walt Simonson does Thor on Thor and Cyclops on X-Factor. And, and uh, what are your favorites? Uh, Snake Eyes by Mike Zek yep. on the G.I. Joe cover. And it was a big month for G.I. Joe, too.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah. Um, on Uncanny X-Men, uh, this issue was during the Mutant Massacre. This was the last issue that John Romita Jr. drew of the series. He had been on the book for a while, and I really liked his stuff on Uncanny X-Men for a while. Uh, this was like early in John Romita Jr.'s career. Well, early-ish. Right. Um, and I really liked his time on that book. And, and I kind of think the Mutant Massacre, this was – I went back and reread a lot of the X-Men books, like from Giant Size Issue 1 up through basically when Claremont left and Lee and Jim Lee kind of took over. And I think The Mutant Massacre was sort of the line where I kind of stopped caring about them after a while because they wrote out a lot of my favorite characters. And then it became Claremont and Mark Silvestri doing the art, and then Silvestri was replaced by Jim Lee. And I really felt... The storytelling took a dive after that, but this was sort of the end of what I consider, like, the golden age of X-Men.
1: Is after this, is this when they go to Australia and people think they're dead? And
0: That was not directly after this, but pretty soon after this.
1: Oh, okay. There was, like, okay. another
0: little mini-event after that where, yeah, they, where everybody thinks they're dead, but it was, it was soon after this, yeah.
1: Oh, okay. Okay. Um, I mentioned the GI Joe titles. I the the GI Joe Order of Battle number mm-hmm. one shipped. I I really liked that comic, even though it was pretty much just the text from the file cards. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but Larry Hama had written them anyway, so you know, it, <laughs> right. it it worked out. Plus, we get the appearance of Rocky Balboa. Yes, too. we do. <laughs> <laughs> And then they have to print a retraction in a later issue that says Rocky was never part of G.I. Joe because the, the deal fell through to, exactly. to make a Rocky action figure.
0: Yeah, they did that in the in the style of the official handbook of the Marvel Universe. But the, the text was pretty thin comparatively. It was basically just one paragraph from the back of the toy. So,
1: so you think Siskoid and the girls are going to cover this or not?
0: If not, I'm going to riot.
1: So. <laughs> I want to see what they think of Dial Tone in you know, a <laughs> lifeline yeah.
0: One other issue that came out by Marvel this month was an issue of Marvel fanfare that concluded John Byrne's run on the Hulk. Now, there's a legend going around this, and I don't know how much of it is true, but supposedly Byrne was working on the Incredible Hulk, and he had this idea for an issue that would be every page would be a splash, just one panel per page. So it would be a 22-page issue with 22 panels, and that was it and his editor refused. They said, no, we are not going to do that. We refuse. And that sort of, that disagreement made him walk off the book and that might have kind of eased his transition going over to DC and taking over Superman, but eventually they published his book outside of The Incredible Hulk and they just put it in this issue of Marvel fanfare. Uh, So I, I don't know what I guess they just thought they didn't have as much to lose by printing it, or he was a big enough name that they would make money just saying it was a John Byrne book anyway. Uh, I don't know all of the details of that story, but the reason I wanted to bring it up was because this is the fourth book that John Byrne wrote and, and drew in this month, cover dated November 1986. There were four books on the stand written and drawn by John Byrne, and when you get to Batman 401 that we're going to be talking about, that is the fifth book with a John Byrne cover. <laughs> this was a busy month for the man.
1: Yeah, I, My understanding is he has a very strict uh, regimen of how he works, and he sticks to it, and that's how he's able to crank out. Like he gets mm-hmm. up in the morning, he pencils – he has to pencil so much by noon. He takes his lunch break. He comes back from lunch. He pencils till like – it's basically like a 9-to-5 job mm-hmm. or an 8-to-5 job, and he treats it as such. And he just he's a freaking or back, at least back then he was a freaking machine. I mean I think Burns output levels probably they they probably came as about as close to rivaling Jack Kirby's as just about anybody that I can think of. Because you know, at one point Jack Kirby was at least doing layouts for nearly every Marvel right, title. Right. Yeah, I think mean, yeah. it was crazy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just crazy.
0: My work ethic is very similar to that, except I take seventeen naps throughout the day. <laughs>
1: Right. Yeah. We, we did mention we forgot one Marvel book that we have to bring up. Oh. Marvel Super Special number forty one. Howard the Duck the Movie. <laughs> Howard the Duck the Movie. The movie adaptation, yes. <laughs> we would be it's just like any time giant size man thing comes up, you yep. gotta mention it. Absolutely. If Howard the Duck the Movie is within somewhere within your realm of your title or your comic you're talking about, you've gotta talk about it. So Howard, I did not have this. I did see the movie. I don't, I think I saw it on video when it came out. I didn't go to the theater and see it, but it probably never, it was, it was pulled from theaters before it would have ever made it down to my little small town (laughs) theater, but I did see it a few years back. I found a DVD of it at a yard sale for literally a dollar and I bought it and I subjected my children to it and I forgot about the duck boobs. So that was unfortunate. <laughs> and yeah. the whole weird interspecies sex thing. So, but you know, other than that, uh, you know, is it the worst movie ever made? No, it's not the worst movie ever made. Is it? Is it uneven and very strange? Yes, yes, it is.
0: <laughs> I just I remember seeing it when I was a kid and just saying, "What is this?" Like, yeah. just, just like like I knew I I had heard of it. And I was, but I was like, "Why?" Even then, I was like, "Why are they doing like what? What is this?" It's like, I don't understand this movie. It feels like it's supposed to be, like, he kind of looks like a Ninja Turtle, but I am not understanding what I'm looking at. This is weird. This makes me feel oh. dirty. The bad kind of dirty.
1: Yeah, yeah, it does. It just makes you feel awkward. It's yeah. just, you know, and Leah Thompson's great. I mean, I always yeah, thought yeah. I had a crush on her, you know, so, yeah. I mean, it, it's good to see her, but yeah, it's, it's really weird. Speaking of Marvel punching bags, I know we got to move back to DC, but the new universe was oh, launching yeah, yeah. at this time. So. Yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah, and we even had a Marvel Age cover with uh, Star Brand on it. So that was part of the big 25th anniversary celebration. They had launched the new universe that was supposed to be, you know, you had the regular Marvel universe, which before it was called the 616 universe, and then you had the, the new universe running at the same time. They weren't connected, and uh, the new universe just never quite caught on the same way, so
0: still has a few fans of it. Some of you guys still talk about those. I I think I got some of the new universe books in, like back when I was collecting in the 90s, my store would have like blind bags, like brown paper bags that were taped shut and it was like five issues for $3 or 10 issues for $5 or something like that. Some some weird combination. It was like, cool, you might get something like really cool. It was all a scam because I ended right. up just getting crap for $10. But, right. but I know I got like, I got a couple issues of Night Mask and some of the other ones. I don't think I ever read them, but.
1: Yeah, Night Mask was – I had a buddy that he bought all of them, and uh, I read Night Mask, and I, – I, well, I tried all of them, and, but Night Mask was the one I kind of kept up with longer. I liked it. Uh, the best of all of them that, that he got, which I'm pretty sure he bought everything, so he bought into the hype. <laughs> <laughs> all right,
0: people. Well, we've uh, we've strayed far enough away from our central topic, so we are going to take a short promotional break right now to play an ad for another podcast that you might enjoy listening to. When we come back, Chris and I are going to tell you all about Batman issue 401. Don't go away.
2: My name is Michael Bailey, and I am still kind of a bad geek. Not a fan of anime. Never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I ventured a little further into the worlds of Star Wars and Star Trek, and I've even managed to watch a little Doctor Who. I've also managed to not watch a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I've been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. Back in 2007, I started a podcast called Views Views from the Longbox." to deal with this borderline personality disorder. Every week or so, I pick a particular comic or issue or character or whatever to talk about them, and then, well, I I talk about them. It's kind of what a podcast is. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I'm joined by my semi-regular co host, the Irredeemable Shag or Thomas DJ, and the permanent semi-regular co-host, Andrew Leyland, and sometimes another friend from the podcasting and comical world stops by to chat. The show is located at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com where you can find old episodes and show notes and links to my other internet endeavors. You can also find the show on Facebook and I'm on Twitter under the handle at Bailey's Podcasts. Views from the Long Box. A podcast about comic books or a desperate cry for help. You decide. Every Tuesday. Or so. At www views from the dot com
0: 401 has a November 1986 cover date, but according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the actual on-sale date was August 7th, 1986, the same day that Man of Steel issue 3 came out, and we'll explain why that matters in a moment. The issue sports a 75-cent price tag and cover art by the legendary John Byrne. The cover is a close-up of a new villainess named Magpie. What do you think of this cover?
1: I think it's a real striking cover. It's kind of odd that the first post crisis issue of Batman doesn't have Batman on the cover, other than his reflection in her glasses. Uh, but <laughs> it's that's kind of a bold move. But it was, it, I remember you know picking this up, and and as we, you got a double dose of Magpie, yeah. uh, like we're we're going to speak here in a minute. So you know you know talk about trying to really you know force a character down people's throats. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's like, here's this brand-new character twice in the same week. But I really it's – a, it's a sharp cover. Um, it's a striking design. The only thing, the coloring on it, she either looks like she's got painful sunburn or psoriasis because she is very, very pink. Yeah. Very pink.
0: <laughs> yeah, her skin tone is almost the same color as her gloves and the reflection in her glasses. Yeah. Yeah. For the longest time, she appeared in just two issues: Man of Steel mm-hmm. issue three and Batman four hundred one, which came out the same day. And then she didn't appear anywhere for a long time. And then, of course, she was she ended up getting killed off. But like this was her thing. They were like really like flash in the pan. Hey, here's Magpie. She's a big deal. Nope.
1: I've got a question on the cover now. I have the the newsstand version with the UPC because I literally bought it off the newsstand. But the uh, the picture on Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, which is, of course, where we looked at all these covers of from the Spinner Rack, it has a blurb that says, Space Clusters is coming. What the hell was that? Was that a thing, Space Clusters?
0: <laughs> I have no idea. Mine says the history of the DC Universe is must-reading in in like the bar where the UPC would be.
1: Oh, interesting. I have no idea what Space Clusters is. Sounds like a cluster. <laughs> 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 I don't think it ever came, whatever it was. I don't. It was the original name of Sonic Disruptors. There
2: you go. (laughs) There you go. There
0: you go. Yeah, um, if this was just a convention sketch that Byrne did of Magpie, fine. As the cover to Batman 401, yeah, put Batman on the damn cover. (laughs) This this feels like it should be a milestone issue. It's a a hundred, it's some hundred and one first issue. Put him on the cover. Like, make a big deal. And like you said, this is the first Batman of a new era. We don't see him. I really think this is a missed opportunity. And also, I never really liked this character that much. And I think part of it was, I don't like the way John Byrne draws her. Mm. Uh, And and part of it is, I mean, she does have this very kind of flashy costume. She's got fishnets, which I am a sucker for. (laughs) But... Byrne has a type. I mean, if you listen to anybody, even the people who are the biggest fans of his, he has body types that he repeats in his drawings. And a lot of his women have the same basic shape of their body, but also their face. And when he does that with most of his characters, they are designed to look attractive, and they're designed to look sexy. So my brain does this weird thing where I feel like he's, he's supposed to make Magpie this kind of cool, sexy character, but the hair... Yeah, this freakish like fright wig thing that's supposed to look like a bird of prey with wings outstretched, and then um, a, a weird mohawk that comes back in this jagged like hook over top, and everything with these bald spots for that. Like, I don't like the hair. I think it makes her look crazy. It it makes it reminds me of like one of the alien X Men women that he was drawing, like Queen Lalandra of the Shi'ar Empire. Like, it's it's weird, and I I don't like his depiction of the character. So I really don't like her front and center on this cover.
1: Yeah, I, I was never a huge fan of her. Uh, and and I'm the same way. It's like I, I, she's got fishnets on. And, yeah, the, I, I think the intention is she's supposed to be sexy. Right. But the, the character herself and then from the neck up is just totally she's not sexy at all. Right. And uh, it, it's a really strange mix. And. I, I will say that Byrne, you know, he, his version of Magpie, and we'll get into this, mm-hmm. she's, she's kind of slight chested for a comic villainous. Uh, her actual bust is pretty small, but she's got uh, like a push up bra on right. or something underneath her top because, well, actually, we'll see in this, she doesn't have a bra on <laughs> underneath. Uh, but, but, uh, it looks like Byrne is giving her one. And, he, and then that works the same in Man of Steel number three. Yeah. Um, you know, which which I kind of like that because that kind of fits her character when we'll get into that she seemed like a really kind of small, mousy person who just snapped over her desire to have sparkly, shiny things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it kind of fits that she's not some big buck, some super sexy, naturally sexy woman, you know. Right. Uh, not that Not that flat-chested or small-chested women can't be sexy, but, you know, just by stereotypes, you know. So I think it's kind of interesting there. But yeah, the The whole hair wig thing, I don't even know how that works. It's like a bald cap and a wig put together. It's really strange.
0: It strikes me this is a costume that would work in The Hunger Games and only The Hunger
1: Games. (laughs) Good point.
0: Man of Steel issue three, you mentioned that though, and I I don't know why. I just sort of thought of that. I think somebody could make a case that that might be the first post-crisis appearance of Batman. Yeah. Because that is the whole shtick about Man of Steel issue three is it's John Byrne reimagining the first time Superman and Batman met. Now it's meant to take place in the past. It's a couple of years before the story that we're telling in this issue. But with that in mind, you know, Byrne's handle on Batman is certainly more like the Batman that we will see in these comics Within a couple issues or certainly like a year from now. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think Byrne did kind of have a, a good handle on the character and knew the direction that he was going to go, making him this very dramatic foil from Superman. They weren't best friends. They're at odds with each other in that issue. It's like they they both think each other is the enemy, but it's done yeah. so much better than in the movie recently. Um, <laughs> but by the end of it you know they're not chummy they're not you know best buddies and everything but they do have this grudging respect for each other and they do concede that they operate differently they both have different strengths they both have different modes that work for their environment but in the end they have the same goals they have the same objectives which is to make the world better so i i i really i i like that story obviously because i love batman so much it's it's one of my you know favorite parts of uh, of the man of steel mini series and Byrne uses Magpie as the villain that they're kind of going after, and the way he does it, there's not a whole lot to her personality. She's just kind of crazy. Actually, I think in, uh, am I remembering correct? I don't have the issue in front of me, but am I re- like, I think John Byrne almost draws her in that in Man of Steel three with almost like a gap between her teeth, and we don't see it on the cover of Batman four hundred one, but I think he, she almost has like this this almost like buck tooth gap or something.
1: Yeah, she does. She has a big there's a there's a close up. The first close up you get of her, she's got a big gap between her teeth. Yeah. Yeah. So she's got the uh was it Lauren Hutton kinda look going on there, <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> so yeah do you make a good point that could definitely be considered the first appearance of the post crisis batman because we all know that, that i mean i didn't know for years but the the post crisis superman kind of appears in booster gold before he appears in man of steel yeah uh, <laughs> which is which is an odd totally odd thing especially weird considering how influential dan Jurgens would be on the post crisis superman in just a few years because he obviously, you know, wrote and drew Booster Gold. But uh, the Batman Superman relationship, I mean, he probably took some cues from from Miller having them fight, but in The Dark Knight, that was more or less the pre-crisis Superman and Batman just years later. They had been friends, you know, they had been chummy, so it it made their battle all the more, you know, shocking that Superman and Batman are having this knockdown drag out fight and they've come to odds and uh, you know, so, Byrne establishes from the get-go that these two, you know, they do respect one another, at least by the end of this issue. At the beginning, Superman just wants to take Batman in. You know, mm-hmm. he's he's going to arrest him, which is kind of hypocritical of Superman. I mean, I hate to say, but it, it kind of is. It's like, hey, wait a minute, buddy. Are you, you know, do you have a badge? No, I don't think so. Oh, yeah. uh, but uh, every iteration of the Superman-Batman relationship since then has at least briefly touched on that version of the relationship. I mean, it has influenced every single media interpretation. I mean, the animated series, they, they slowly warmed up to each other over the course of the Superman and Batman animated series and Justice League. And and then, of course, like you said, BVS. And it's all come from this issue. Uh, you know, it's been influenced by this issue. So this, this is a pretty important issue. It's just odd that a very unimportant villain like Magpie... <laughs> <laughs> is the antagonist, and uh, and then she gets another appearance the very month. I was yeah. going to
0: say, unimportant, you say. She's on the cover of Batman 401.
1: Right. She's the only thing on the cover of Batman <laughs> 401, which is really weird. And, I mean, not to belabor the point, but this is Batman 401. Think about it. This is really Batman post-crisis number one. Yeah. I think it's even at a one, you yeah. know, so – it's really odd that they, you know, I mean, like we said, it's John Byrne, but and John Byrne's drawing Batman on the cover of Man of Steel this very week. So, I mean, maybe they thought, oh, well, he's on the cover. We got to burn Batman over here. We're fine. But I think I would have had Byrne draw Batman in the, in the shot somehow, you know. <laughs>
0: right, right. All right. We ready to get into Batman 401? Let's do it. All right. The issue is written by Barbara Randall, illustrated by Trevor Von Eden, lettered by John Costanza, colored by Adrian Roy, and edited by Denny O'Neill. As we mentioned, the first issue in what will be his long, storied tenure as Bat Editor. The story, titled A Bird in the Hand, opens with a wealthy socialite named Sandra Van DeKar and her husband getting ready for a party. While Mr. Van snobbishly derides their social peers, Sandra puts on a necklace, triggering a series of blades hidden in the gems. The blades slice her throat and she bleeds to death before her husband even notices she's hurt. Later that night, Batman goes to Gotham Police Headquarters, lurking on the ledge outside Commissioner Gordon's office. The Dark Knight eavesdrops on Detective David Estevez, briefing the Commissioner on the Vandekar murder. Sandra was clearly the latest victim of Magpie, a murderer who steals jewels, replacing them with booby-trapped copies. Estevez sees no way to predict Magpie's pattern, but after he leaves, Batman slips into the commissioner's office and reveals the pattern to Gordon. The Vandekar diamond, like the other jewels in Magpie's latest killing spree, has a bird-themed nickname. Batman suggests setting an irresistible trap for Magpie, using the Wayne collection of jewels as bait. Presumably the next day, Bruce Wayne hosts a formal gala at Wayne Manor to display his family jewels. Or the family's collection of priceless jewels, that is. Gordon Gordon has staffed the event with undercover cops, including Detective Roberta Valle, who is posing as Bruce Wayne's date and wearing a signature piece of his collection, the Falcon's Eye necklace. Bruce convincingly plays the part of snobbish idiot for Gordon and Valle. He even suggests to Gordon that Batman would have better luck catching magpie than the police. As Bruce Wayne, Commissioner Gordon, and Roberta Valle make their rounds at the party, they bump into G. Gordon Godfrey, a media pundit of sorts who has frequently denounced the Gotham police force for their dependence on vigilantes like Batman. But the cops aren't Godfrey's only target. Even Bruce Wayne is accused of ceding control of the city to a criminal vigilante. As Godfrey's verbal attacks on Bruce and the cops become more heated, he knocks into a waiter, spilling a drink all over Detective Valle's dress and the Falcon's eye. A waitress escorts the detective to the bathroom, but as Vaillet is getting cleaned up, the waitress starts to compliment her on how pretty her jewels are, how sparkly and pretty and shiny the diamonds are. Vaye looks at the waitress and discovers, to her horror, that it's magpie in disguise at the party, Godfrey continues his tirade against vigilantes and the culture that condones them. Suddenly, Roberta Valle comes running from the bathroom screaming. Gas spills out of her necklace, and the people exposed to the gas begin fighting each other. Bruce Wayne takes advantage of the chaos to slip out of the room and throw on the garb of Batman. He comes back to a room of men in tuxedos and women in ball gowns in full-on riot mode. Batman fights his way to Detective Valle and removes her booby-trapped necklace. As the gas stops, the partygoers begin to calm down. That is, until G. Gordon Godfrey stands on a table telling them all that Batman caused the riot. Batman attacked them. Some of the people witnessed Batman's heroism, but there is enough confusion among the guests that Godfrey's lies begin to take hold. In the Batcave beneath Wayne Manor, Batman and Robin hop in the Batmobile and take off after Magpie. Batman figures she'll take her latest pretty acquisition back to her nest, the same museum she used for a hideout in the last time Batman fought her. The dynamic duo sneak into the museum and find Magpie and her goons in a basement storage room full of diamonds and other jewels. Batman and Robin fight her henchmen while Magpie heads for the exit. Robin tries to stop her and ends up accidentally pulling her top down. Awkwardly covering his eyes so he doesn't get too much of a look at her exposed breasts, Robin allows Magpie to slip out of the storage room with one of her sparkly necklaces. She then seals Batman and Robin inside and activates a death trap, a system of lasers slowly lowering down from the ceiling until they will eventually slice Batman and Robin to ribbons. Batman uses one of the diamonds Magpie left behind as a prism to refract the laser and reflect it towards the sealed exit. The laser weakens the door enough that Robin is able to shatter it with an expertly placed kick. Meanwhile, as Magpie has been making her escape, she tripped and dropped the necklace under one of the museum displays. She crawls over and digs it out, but by the time she retrieves the necklace, Batman and Robin have escaped the death trap and cornered her. Magpie pulls a gun loaded with explosive tipped darts and aims it squarely at Batman, but he knows she won't fire because he's still holding one of the stolen diamonds, and Magpie would never risk damaging one of her pretty things. Just the thought of it paralyzes her, in fact, and then Magpie breaks down crying, knowing that she's powerless against her psychotic compulsion to collect shiny objects. As Batman walks Magpie out of the museum to take her to jail, G. Gordon Godfrey's attacks on the superhero and vigilante community can be heard. What kind of men are these vigilantes anyway? Magpie calls Batman a horrible person, but he responds simply, I am what I have to be. And that's the end of Batman 401, A Bird in the Hand. All right, what did you think of this?
1: Well, <laughs> it's not bad, but it's, it feels... It's a very by-the-numbers Batman story. Mm -hmm. It's got a costume criminal with a gimmick who creates a series of crimes. Batman deduces the pattern. He uses his Bruce Wayne persona and his fortune as a trap. The criminal strikes at the event and slips through Batman's fingers. He and Robin take off at the Batmobile... Figure out the villain's HQ. They have a bat fight there. They get in and out of a death trap, and then he <laughs> finally captures the villain. I mean, it's uh, it feels very much like a '60s TV show episode, yes. minus, minus the elements of the uh, legends, which are seem pretty well crammed in. I mean, G. Gordon Godfrey's appearance there actually makes no sense. Who invited him? <laughs> Why didn't they just eject him since he wasn't invited? it just- it feels like an inventory story that they dusted off and threw the legends parts in it to to tie in that's what it feels like to me it's not it's not bad it's not it's it's just an odd it's a very slow start for the post crisis batman <laughs>
0: I agree. And actually, you, you kind of mentioned one of the things that I... Like, just the fact that there's a death trap towards the end that they have to escape from really reminded me of a Silver or Bronze Age Batman, or like Batman 66 type of story. Yeah, uh, It definitely has that sort of formula. Um, not bad. I mean, that is a winning formula. That's one of the things that made the character popular. And I think the story is pretty good. It's nothing spectacular, but I enjoyed reading it. The art, as I mentioned, is by Trevor Von Eden. Now, if you've listened to any of my podcasts before, I have a reputation uh, when it comes to thinking about Trevor Von Eden. And I have always made this position. I really loved his work on Black Lightning. I liked his work on the Green Arrow and Black Canary backup strips from World's Finest. I really liked his work on a Batman annual that Mike Barr wrote. I think it was annual number eight. Mm -hmm. But I've never gotten a chance to cover those stories on a podcast yet. The Trevor Von Eden stories that I have covered were from Secret Origins and the Black Canary series from the early 90s. And the art was awful. I hated it. So I have this reputation for hating on Trevor Von Eden and always ripping him to pieces whenever I have to talk about him. So I wasn't even thinking about it, but when I got this one, I was like, oh, I get to talk about Trevor Von Eden again. Hmm. <laughs> the thing is, I really liked the art in this. I thought, it, I thought it was solid. Now, it's not perfect. There are certainly there are flashes where you see, oh, he really just didn't draw any backgrounds in that scene or that page. But you don't necessarily need them that much. But, yeah, I, I liked the art. I thought he did a good job with this one issue. I even think I, – I would have been okay with seeing more of this because – His, I mean, it's it's nowhere near... It's not in the same family as a David Mazzuchelli, who comes on with 404 for the Batman Year One story. But I see enough similarities in their style that that would have been a kind of complementary transition Mm -hmm. uh, to see this Trevor Von Eden to David Mazzuchelli and then maybe back again if he had stayed on this book a little bit longer. I would have been okay with that. I really like the way he does Batman in this issue. Uh, And also, and this... I might be the first person to ever say this, I might be the only person, but I like how he draws Magpie. I like Von Eden's Magpie better than John Byrne's Magpie, because I don't get the same, like, I don't feel like he's trying to draw a sexy woman and failing, because of the weird Mm. hairstyle. She doesn't give it, she seems more flat-chested, and kind of just, she doesn't have the same sexy face that you would picture on Lois Lane. It's not the same type of type, so I think it works better for the character when Von
1: Eden draws her than when John Byrne does. Hmm. That's interesting. I, I I definitely, I had the Mazzuccelli connection in my notes. There's a couple of, especially during the fight scene, there's a couple of panels in there that look very Mazzuccelli or Alex Toth. They've, they've got kind of an Alex Toth look to it. Yeah. Yeah. I can
0: see that.
1: And, and, you know, his, Von Eden's style really changed a lot. I mean, from, from one uh, book to the next, I think partially because he didn't other than like the green arrow, black canary backups and well, black lightning. Uh, he didn't really have a series he stuck with very long i guess he did the thriller series at dc but after that he started just doing a lot seemed like a journeyman type artist so every time you saw him his art had changed and it's definitely a looser more minimalistic style than what he did with the batman annual the number batman annual number eight which was probably the last time he really drew batman i think he drew a Issue of Batman, sometime in the early to mid 300s uh um, in the early eighties, I remember. But that was around the same period as Annual Number Eight. So it really, it really, had evolved and changed. But it, but I, I, I'm with you. I, I don't. There's some things in there yet. Yeah, his backgrounds are are a little too minimalistic in a couple spots, and yeah. his Robin definitely looks like Dick Grayson, not Jason Todd. He looks, he looks too old. He's got the wrong haircut. But we'll, we'll get a lot of that before they. <laughs> back and forth in fact the next comic we talk about will have the same problem but uh so it's interesting i I, i'm not sure which magpie i like better but i i get your point i get that that she looks the way he draws her features and everything actually fits the character design a little bit better i see what you're saying it's not just like lois lane in a fright wig and a pair of fishnets as kind of as he kind of put it you know right
0: right I mean, I think the scene in the party with when people start to riot, when the detective comes out sort of screaming with a necklace, and you just kind of get this hissing effect, but you don't really, like, see the gas and people just are going crazy. I think that was a little bit confusing. I had to read that yeah, a couple yeah. times before I really grasped what the situation is, and I don't know if that was a fault of the script or if that was a limitation of the art, but I think maybe that could have been staged a little bit differently.
1: Yeah, I, I think that I was I had that as my notes. That was a criticism that, yeah, it's I know maybe it was supposed to be like, a you know, it was supposed to be an invisible gas. But still, it would have helped to see some vapors. And mm-hmm. and I'm not really sure exactly why everybody lost their crap and why the, you know, Batman's like fighting the cops as he comes in. It's it's. That part's really strange. I don't know if that was uh, in the script and, and Von Eden just drew it and, and Randall didn't really put that across or he interpreted it wrong. Maybe he got a wind of what Legends was going to be and just kind of jumped the gun that the cops were at the point where they'd start beating up on Batman. You know, I, I, I don't know because it shows Batman coming in between two cops who were like either trying to punch each other or him. And then after he gets to the woman, the the one cop says, I'll take her outside and they're fine with Batman. Of course by then Godfrey's up on the table ranting and raving and why in the world somebody wouldn't just take that guy out, I don't know. But. <laughs> But uh, some of the storytelling is, I think, a little a little hard to follow and a little weak. But, you know, overall, the art style, it's not my preferred comic book art style, but I'm more of a traditionalist, I guess. But I can see the uh, I can see the appeal. And and, and that's a good I mean, I I hadn't even thought of that. But, you know, we're going to see some very different art styles. Um, The Batman title in particular Mm -hmm. uh, is, is going to bounce around between many, many artistic hands over the next year of discussion. And no two artists look alike, really, <laughs> except this one and Mazzuccelli have uh, a commonality that uh, I had never noticed until I was you know, looking at this with a critical eye. And I, I think maybe if they had pulled Von Eden back in, it would have at least gave the book a consistent look. I, that's a good point.
0: Yeah. Speaking of the writing, uh, Barbara Randall had written a few Batgirl stories in Detective Comics uh, and also a few Superman stories prior to this. Between 1985 and 1988, she bounced around as kind of a journeyman writer, picking up different jobs. Uh, At some point, I don't know exactly when it was, but she ends up marrying the artist Carl Kiesel. And actually, she went by Barbara Kiesel for a big chunk of her career. Mm -hmm. Uh, The two of them wrote Hawk and Dove together in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, I think... I mean, I think she knows the characters well enough. Like I said, it's a it's a fairly simple story. I think, as you mentioned, it's kind of a by-the-numbers. It could be an inventory story that you could sort of plug anywhere. I don't necessarily think that's a criticism. I mean, if if this was meant to be, you know, her the, the story, if this was a tryout for a longer run on the character, that didn't obviously happen. It is sort of a fill-in, but I think she does a good job. I think she knows who Batman is. One of the things that, that struck me in early on in the story, and I don't know if this had been kind of established as their relationship, or if this was something kind of brand new for this era that maybe Denny O'Neill brought in, but the fact that while Gordon is talking to this Detective Estevez, getting a briefing, Batman is waiting outside the office. Batman sneaks in through the window later. There is kind of this distinction where Batman will talk to Gordon, but he's not friendly with the rank-and-file cops. Mm-hmm. And that felt like a definite change now i don 't know if Doug Mench or Jerry Conway had been playing with that earlier on in like the years leading up to this, but to me that felt definitely i was like, okay, this is a different Batman than the one that we had seen a decade earlier
1: yeah i mean, I think some writers sometimes would do that, but I think without having like reread minch 's run i he seemed more i mean obviously Bullock was a was an important character during that, that <laughs> yeah, run. I mean, obviously, he was part of the crew that was kidnapped in the Batman 400, which we talked about. Uh, so Batman was around him, if nothing else. Uh, this Detective Estevez, I don't know if we ever even see him again. I don't think so. I don't think so. But, uh, but yeah, that, that was interesting. I also thought it was interesting that Batman called Gordon James. Usually, it's either... Commissioner Gordon or Jim, mm-hmm. you know, uh The so James was was, was kind of interesting. Uh another thing that kind of was uh even though this does have that feeling of a uh 50s Bill Finger Batman type story which was then adapted into the uh the TV series. Uh you know, the the opening page is pretty gruesome. I mean, uh yep. you know, the lady puts on a necklace and then she's you know that horrid look on her face that horrible look as she as the the necklace slices into her and and then she's you know crawling across the floor with her neck bleeding i mean that's that's pretty hardcore you know <laughs> for a for a comics code approved uh issue we're in a little bit different territory here you know uh I, I did like uh, a couple uh, – uh, Randall puts in some pretty good lines in this issue. I, I like some of the dialogue. Like Batman uh, says uh, Bruce Wayne owes him. I, I like that. Yeah. Um, you know, and he says, well, how do you know Wayne's going to go along with this? He owes me. <laughs> and uh, and Gordon says you – know, when Bruce says, well, I, you know, I, where's Batman at the party? And he says the Gotham PD can handle some things on its own. And besides, it's daytime. Yeah. <laughs> uh which is another line in the sand. We're not gonna see Batman run around in the daylight, which they didn't do very often post O'Neill Adams. I mean, in, in the Batman detective issues they didn't they didn't show Batman running up the steps to uh police headquarters like the T V show in Broad Daylight or anything. But
0: that seems like something like Haney did in uh in Brave and the Bold more more than was common in the regular Batman detective
1: books. Right, yes. Of course, you know, Haney's that's all on Earth B, so you know. <laughs> That doesn't count as Earth 1, that's Earth B. Uh, so, <laughs> well, I think we do need to bring up the fact that, and we're going to get into this even more in the next comic we talk about, but G. Gordon Godfrey. Doesn't quite look like the G. Gordon Godfrey that we'll get by Byrne and Kiesel in, in Legends.
0: Yeah, it's clear that Trevor Von Eden and in the next issue, Klaus Jansen hadn't seen what John Byrne was going to do with G. Gordon Godfrey. They hadn't seen his model. Um, they could have just looked at Arcade from the old X Men comics. Um, Right. (laughs) But if you looked at all of these books the same month, it's like, ooh, which character is this? Why does he look so different? Is this part of Darkseid's scheme that he has a shape changer?
1: Do we not have a who's who in the office that they can say, look, it's Glorious Godfrey with a pair of glasses on and a suit?
0: That's a good point. Yeah, he wasn't even a brand new character.
1: No, he was a glorious. I mean, he'd been around since the seventies. I mean, right. I hadn't used him a whole lot outside of the actual fourth world titles, but he was an existing character who had a, a who's who entry. It's not like he, you know, he was he should the model sheet should have been by Jack Kirby.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's got to be. Uh, I'm I'm figuring that's a O'Neill dropped the ball on that, and maybe he didn't know enough about what was going on at Legends at the time when he was just picking this up, and he was he was uh, up against the deadline, and he didn't.
1: So. Right, well, and Barbara Randall was the assistant editor at this time. Yeah, so, she was, she was. So, so she was, uh, in, in, in the letter column in this issue, she talks about how she saw the Magpie character, the artwork come in from Byrne, which, which, this this proves that this isn't an inventory story, obviously. Mm-hmm. It just feels like one, but she saw the artwork with Magpie come in, and she was just instantly captivated by the character, and she wanted to, to use her. So I guess Byrne was working ahead pretty far, which, you know, that might point to the Fact that uh, there are a lack of backgrounds and that Godfrey's off model that they you know Man of Steel number three was artwork was coming in and they hadn't even written a story on this one yet so yeah. you see a little strings in the background you know uh, of how comics are put together maybe it's the timelines kind of odd considering these came out at the same time but
0: but even I mean well I Man of Steel was coming out biweekly you know <laughs> so that had to be done pretty far in advance. But even again, going back to like O'Neill, like the coordination because Trevor Von Eden's version of Glory or uh, G. Gordon Godfrey looks nothing like Klaus Janssen's in the Detective issue, so right. even that wasn't like synced up, or or the artists just kind of went rifted and did their own thing, and maybe they were just crunching that they didn't have time to redraw them. But
1: yeah, I think I think these issues were sounds like you know like obviously editorial change. There was a crossover. You know, it's it's kind of odd that they, you know, gave it to the Batman, the new Batman office, to launch this crossover event. The first two chapters, when they obviously were up against the wall. I mean, it's it, it really seems like these were rushed out pretty quick because just because of the Godfrey thing. Because mm-hmm. any other time they would have said, uh, no, you guys need to, you know, put a pair of glasses on him, Trevor and uh, Klaus. You got to have him lose about a hundred pounds. You know, so, <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, we'll we'll get into that next time. But yeah, if you think he's off model here, just wait.
0: Uh. <laughs> I got to say getting back to their fight with Magpie when Robin accidentally rips her shirt down, I, I got it. I kind of got like a juvenile giggle out of that. I kind of went hee <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> because of and then again it's perfect because of his reaction like he kind of he covers his eyes and says, "Excuse me," while she runs away. That's right. like, yeah, okay, that's he's still a kid. That was kind of yeah. cute.
1: Yeah, yeah. It it's kind of it is a little undermined by the fact that again this looks like Dick Grayson instead of Jason Todd and he looks he looks like he's at least 16, 17. Right. Uh instead which of course Dick should be about like 19, 20 by now, but he, he doesn't look like the uh the Jason Todd we've uh, usually seen in the uh the comics up to this point. Um, Tom Mandrake had a tendency to draw him looking like he was like 30 years old, but uh, <laughs> as seen in his who's who entry. Uh, but uh, that is, I always remember that that's, that's something you remember out of this issue is, you know, Robin pulling her top down. So, uh, so we are talking about the sixties TV show. We have the sixties comic version of the TV Batmobile yep. in this issue. I mean, it's the 67 68 comic Batmobile that looks just enough like the George TV Batmobile that they don't have to, you know, pay him anything. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll, we'll see a lot of different Batmobiles uh, as we go through and it'll, it'll be a while before we kind of settle on one. You know, the, the the default one during this period is, as we mentioned last episode, is the 1978-slash-1980 uh, Batmobile that Dick Giordano designed that's the basis of the superpowers toy. Mm-hmm. It gets the most juice, but now we've gone back to the, the 60s one here, which I think is kind of interesting.
0: Yeah, I'm looking forward to, like, chronicling all of the different Batmobiles. Yeah, me too. There is one panel that I need to talk about. It's one of the most awkward and weird panels, and it was something that I didn't catch the first time, but again, when you go back and look at this and have to scrutinize the Comic Four podcast, it is the second-to-last panel on page 22. Okay. It is a page of Batman from about the waist up, with Magpie in front of him on her knees, crying. Yeah. We just see the back of her head, and Trevor Von Vonne gives it lines like her head is moving as she's sobbing, and Batman has a handout. (laughs) And... In any other context, whoa, you could take this panel much, much differently. Cause her <laughs> head is bobbing up and down in front of his crotch area and it looks like he's about to tap her on the shoulder and his line is Margaret, it must end now. <laughs> Whew, I think he would I think Trevor Van was having a lot of fun drawing this one.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I never even thought of that, but now that I'm looking at it, I can't unthink it. <laughs> yeah, <it's- laughs> Uh, Whoa. <laughs> there's
0: a kid in the room, Batman. What are you doing?
1: <laughs> okay, oh, you got I, jumped up.
0: I, I, I couldn't not mention that. I just I had to point that out. Um, as a palate cleanser to you know clean up your dirty, dirty minds, we get two house ads. Well, we get a couple of house ads in this uh, issue, but one of them is for the famous, or will Robin die tonight, Batman 408 on sale in March. This is issue 401 that this ad appears in. They're already advertising the story that's going to take place after Batman Year One. Like, this is way in advance. And then later on in my copy, there's a house ad for Batman Annual 1987. That came out in April, a month later. So they're talking about stuff that is still seven,
1: eight, nine months away. Now, I don't have any of that. I well, wonder if you have a reprint.
0: I bet it, well, my copy is probably different because I, you know, you've got the UPC bar, and mine is different. Right. Which ads right. are in yours?
1: Well, see, here's here's an odd thing. I have the one I got off the newsstand and around August 7th. I'm sure it was after August 7th because it was newsstand. But I've got the biggest house side that I've got is the one on the inside back cover for Batman Year One. And it's the great Mazzuchelli shot of Batman standing with his cape. Yep. It's completely over his, his right shoulder. It's draped down, and then it's his arms like holding the, his cape on his left side. And you can see his utility belt on that side and his left leg. He's strong, smart, relentless, shrewd, and cunning, a powerful fighter, you know, that one.
0: Okay, I've got that ad in my copy of Detective from this month, but not that.
1: I, that I- do too. I've got an ad for the Mayfair Legion of Superheroes source book. Um, I've got an ad for Specials and Annuals, Vigilante Annual number two, with the Brian Ballin cover. And I've got a little half ad for Crisis. And I've got a Legends ad that shows Detective uh, number, the, the next issue of Detective we do, and uh, the Legends number one. Huh. So that's really weird. Um,
0: Mine must be a reprint that came out a couple months later because I've got the Dr. Fate miniseries from mm. Given and Demetrius. The Infinity Incorporated and the Outsiders crossover. Uh, like I said, there's the ad for it's Batman 408. So, yeah, this issue must have been reprinted like six months after its original release.
1: Well, even weirder. Well, that, that's weird. I didn't know about that. And I don't think any of this is listed on Mike's Amazing World. But I have a copy of Batman 401, 402, and 403 that came in a DC 3-pack. And they were released, I think, in around 1989 when the movie came out, during Batmania. And it even says on the Indicia... It says, um, second printing, comma, DC multipack. So that's how you know. And it also has totally different ads, and it has no house ads. It's all ads from, there's an ad for Operation Wolf, the video game. There's a TSR ad. There's a lot of Nintendo ads. So, you know, this was when the heyday of the NES in the late 80s. Lot Lots and lots of those type of ads. So why did this comic get reprinted so many times? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Again, again, with this cover of all things,
1: right? Well, I, that's I mean, those three issues uh, were in that three pack. I mean, it's nice that they did it in sequence: four hundred one, four hundred two, four hundred three, and four hundred two and four hundred three are a, a uh, you know one story really. It's a two parter, but. It's really odd that they picked those to reprint. I mean, and it, the one that you've got really stumps me because it's not that far after. It's just like you said, a few months, like what, six, seven months later? Yeah. That the, according to the ads, because we've got the infamous, does Robin die tonight, which I just can't wait to get to that. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I, we know you love that one. I love that one. Uh, got a lot to say about that one. Um, I think I'm going to start writing a dissertation on it, actually. Uh, go ahead and get started on it. There's an ad
0: for their subscription service. You can, like, subscribe to the books, and it lists all the books they had out that were 75 cents. Justice League, Tales of the Teen Titans, one, all those books. Their $1 book was Spectre. Their $1.25 books was Secret Origins. <laughs> that was a waste. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're okay, they're $1.50 books. They do list the question, and at mm. this point, Denny O'Neill hadn't stopped because he even mentions that in one of the letters from the Den columns in either this issue of Batman or this month's issue of Detective that he needs right. to start working on the question. Yeah. So it had come out by the time this one because they had the
1: subscription order form for it. It's interesting. This, I, I think this is a time when DC's really kind of examining – you know how how are we gonna? You know what other formats can we do? This is obviously around the time that comic companies are really the love affair with the direct market is in full bloom. They're starting to you know kind of pay more attention to the the direct market than to the newsstand. Um, you know you've you've started to have things like the Dark Knight come out and direct only series. You've obviously got the experiment, the Great Experiment titles, the Baxter series of Teen Titans, um, New Teen Titans, Outsiders, and. League into superheroes while their old newsstand titles become reprints of those titles. So, you know, there's the first few what we would know as a modern-day trade paperback are coming out with the Dark Knight Returns and pretty soon Batman Year One. So, It's like they're trying to they're trying to figure out not only are they trying to figure out their characters, but they're really trying to figure out, you know, what how do we get comic books into the hands of people? Because the newsstand distribution is kind of dying. It's not what it used to be. Comic shops seem to be the big thing. And so it's it's weird. You know, these the the, the idea of a, a multi pack of comics is. You know one that they had back in the 60s at least in the 70s and they'll revisit it and I think I've heard people say there's even uh, some rebirth multi packs out like right now like at Walmart's or targets or something and uh, so I, you know I haven't
0: so- seen the rebirth ones but I have seen new 52 multi packs
1: okay okay um,
0: and I'm sure the rebirth ones are that yeah I've heard people talk about that but I know I've seen some uh, new 52 ones just within the last year
1: wow so I mean you know it's something that gets revisited and uh, maybe that your version of that came out of an earlier mm-hmm. multi-pack, and they just keep printing them. You know, they just kept printing them over the course of several years uh, in the late 80s. Yeah. Who knows? So
0: The last big difference between your copy and my copy that you and I discovered yesterday as we were comparing and prepping for this, my copy is missing a page. <laughs> which I never realized and I always kind of wondered why I got my copy years ago in a cheap box like unbagged and boarded it was just kind of loose in like one of those cheap ones I was like really 401 I was like that oh, I, I pay like I think I think it was a dollar or something but I just realized it because we were talking mine does not have the letters page or the Brian Boland one shot image on the back page because yeah. that page has been cut out I think with scissors somebody <laughs> wanted that pin up really bad and they just cut that page out but it's it's pretty fine it's it's up against the staple but it's a little bit uneven i can see that they didn't just rip it they they cut it out because i got to the end we were talking i was like yeah mine doesn't have a letters page we'll have to talk about the letters column next time and you're like
1: yeah there is yeah the the pinup's kind of neat it's got cops are like uh, it it looks it almost looks like I, i guess it's supposed to be inside a building but it almost looks like it could be down inside of like a a sewer too or something it's It's like like
0: a a, a maintenance tunnel like off of a subway or something yeah it's definitely definitely an underground tunnel with an exposed grill that looks out at the like the skyline above
1: yeah yeah that's kind of what i always thought it was but now looking at it i'm like well is it that or is it just in a lower skyscraper a, a building that's not quite as tall as the others and and batman's coming through the skyline i guess you could look at it either way but i always kind of thought it was like a like an access tunnel or something, but you got like three criminals running from cops. One's firing back on them. They're very punkoid, very eighties looking, except the one guy in the relaxed t-shirt and <laughs> jacket looks, he's a little, he doesn't look quite as hip as the other two, but Batman's coming down. Like he's getting ready to come through the grate or the skylight, however you want to. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's, could it's,
1: it could almost look like a skylight or something. I don't know. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty sharp. It's Brian Bolland, you know, right. he had just done, uh, you know, a good chunk of Batman number 400 and was working on the killing joke. So, He was uh, heavy into Batman at this point. Right, right. Those are all the notes I have for this issue. Do you have anything else? I think we've covered it pretty well. I think we've examined Batman four oh one uh pretty thoroughly and if you want another some more talk of that, check out the views from the long box, the Legends episodes. I think it was uh, Michael and Andrew Leyland talked yep. about these comics, so that's that's always a good time.
0: So next episode when we get to it we will talk about Detective Comics issue five hundred and sixty eight, which was also a Legends tie in by a completely different team with a different story, and yet still a bird themed villain. <laughs>
1: That was one thing I was going to bring up. I, I, I forgot about that. The whole bird theme of the jewelry is very penguin-like. Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of in his shtick. But, you know, there's definitely some crossover between characters like Clue Master and the Riddler, so I guess it's not unprecedented. <laughs>
0: Maybe that's why she didn't last that long. Maybe they're kind of like, um, she doesn't have the staying power that the penguin does, so...
1: I will say this. Did you ever see the Beware the Batman animated series? Uh,
0: Not. I saw maybe the first episode, but that was it. I didn't stick with it.
1: Magpie shows up on that eventually. I I didn't end up watching the whole series either because Cartoon Network just decided to launch it and quickly abandon it. They basically pulled it from the schedule and then dumped it. Like, in the wee hours of the morning, the remaining episodes, which is just mind-boggling when they're all owned by the same company. It's like, way to treat your properties, people. But anyway, Magpie was redesigned in that series, and you should should look Um, that up. I'm looking at it right now. It's surprisingly sexual for a Saturday morning cartoon. Yeah. She's in a bustier with her cleavage popping out, and she's got a blonde, white blonde, bob wig, uh, no mohawk. She kind of looks like a really super sexed-up alternate design for Black Canary, honestly.
0: Sort of. I was, I was going to say, she's got the, uh, the jean gray as the goblin queen look, or the black queen look. Yeah. Um, or this could have been an outfit that Lady Gaga wore to an awards
1: show. Exactly. I was going to say, she's got kind of a Lady Gaga kind of vibe about her.
0: Actually, Lady Gaga would be great as the role of Magpie.
1: <laughs> yeah, she would. Yeah, actually, yeah. So there you go. But I, it's, you know, I think it's a much better design. It, it had it been that design, she might have stuck around, you know. she well, got. It's, to,
0: it's certainly, I think it ages better. I think that's a, a look that you can kind of transpose into different eras. Whereas the one that Byrne designed, it, it feels like it may have worked in 1986 and not much longer after that.
1: I don't even know. It, it's kind of one of those things where it feels like it was... Inspired by something a few years earlier in the '80s, so we were kind of mm-hmm. already maybe past that a little bit yeah. by this point. That punkoid, that almost road warrior meets yeah. road warrior type look, you know. So, yeah. but yeah, she she was pretty effective as I remember on that. And I was really surprised. It's like, wow, I cannot believe that they're <laughs> they they've created this 3D animated character in this outfit, and she's moving around, and things are moving around, and. <laughs> <laughs> It was surprisingly – it was just surprising. I'll put it to you that way. (laughs) As Shag would say, she's hot. (laughs) All right, folks. At the time we're recording
0: this, episode one hasn't come out yet, so we don't have listener feedback from that. What we do have is almost 40 people who have liked our Facebook page, which is awesome. The current page likes come from Aaron Henley, Aaron Moss, Abel Padilla, Andrew Kovac, Andrew Leyland, Anthony Durso, Christopher Luke, Chuck Gears, Clinton Robison, Dan Greenfield, David Foster, David Weeder, Derek Burke, Derek William Crab, Gotham Shiorin, Gene Hendricks, Gord Tolton, Greg Arujo, Jared Wrightman, Jay Jones, Jeremy Gunter, John Trumbull, Keith G. Baker, Michael Wagner, Mike Gillis, Mike Peacock, Nathaniel Wayne, Nicholas Prom, Pat Sampson, Rob Kelly, Sean Ross, Sean Walsh, Shag, Siskoid, Stephen Bird, Trey Hooks, and Van Z.
1: Over on the Fire & Water website, we got a few comments on the promo for Nightcast. Our fellow Fire & Water all-star Siskoid called the promo hilarious <laughs> so thanks Siskoid. and lewis uh wrote in and said really looking forward to this one this was the time when i really got into these things called comic books before bat books saturated the market there was the one-two combo of detective by grant and bray and batman by wolfman and apero and uh you know I, that's that's a good point wolfman you know he contributed quite a bit to the uh post-crisis batman and i think that gets kind of overlooked so i'm i'm looking forward to uh Obviously, a lonely place of dying. Everyone knows, but I think a lot of times people forget. Hey, that was Marv Wolfman, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and George Perez, actually. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to talking about that. that Me too, time.
0: and and that's again, that's I think we'll talk a little bit more about that on the next episode, particularly when we kind of talk more about Denny O'Neill's contribution. But one of those other kind of differences between post-crisis Batman was. It didn't seem like he had one particular vision kicking off the new era. It sort of took a little while for these things to to fall into place. But, uh, yeah, definitely Definitely. Wolfman's contribution. I'm excited to talk about that when we get to it in a year or so. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) One other thing. uh, A couple of weeks ago on Twitter, I just threw out a random question. Top three Batman artists. And I got 11 responses from those. People just posting three of their favorite all-time Batman artists. I don't think it will come as much of a surprise that the number one favorite among the respondents was Jim Aparo. He got 10 out of 11 responders voted for Jim Aparo, at least somewhere on their list. Uh, These weren't necessarily in order. Neil Adams got 7 out of the 11 responders. Norm Brayfogle at 3. Alan Davis got 2 votes. And Marshall Rogers got 2 votes. All of the other artists only came up once from one person, but they include David Mazzuchelli, Dick Sprang, Don Newton, Gene Colin, Greg Capullo, showing some love for the newer artist, Frank Quitely, Irv Novick, Mike Parabek, and Trevor Von Eden. We actually got somebody, I, I'm almost positive that was Diablo Frank. Uh, mm. So, But yeah, the artist uh, who drew this one. Uh, I, I mean, I can't say boo about any of those artists. I think they all have a great handle on Batman. I was thinking about this in my own list right now. If I'm doing this today, I would have Norm Bray Fogel, Jim Aparo, and Marshall Rogers in my top three. But runners-up, I would include Gene Colan. He's my favorite artist, and I do like the way he did Batman. And I know this is something that you and I, I think we differ on, but I really like Tim Sale's Batman. I, just, oh, yeah. I, I like his style, so he's not in top three, but he's a runner-up. He's pretty close.
1: Yeah, it's 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 a weird thing with Tim Sale. I I appreciate his storytelling and I like the works he's done, but I'm just not. This this personal bias against his art, I just can't overcome. So <laughs> no,
0: I understand. That's fine. We're gonna but have I, a, I We're that. gonna have a new co-host on the next episode. So. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we get to the long Halloween, we might be in trouble. But uh, yeah, so that's a ways off. But actually, right as of right now, I would have to say. Uh, Dick Spring. Uh I think Dick Spring's the, yeah. the the greatest of the Golden Age Batman orders, Uh in my favorite. Uh, I would – I hate to do it, but I have to – I think I have to pick Neil Adams after Jim Aparo just because Aparo kind of keyed off of Adams' Batman. Mm-hmm. So I think I'll have to go with Adams there, and then I have to go with Marshall Rogers. I
0: knew he would uh, be on your list. I knew he'd be on your list.
1: Uh, he's the best capage of any batman i know uh, michael bailey talks about Byrne doing great capage with superman well marshall rogers was the best at capage with batman in my opinion uh, uh runners up would be jim apparo uh don newton norm bray fogle uh you know bruce tim bruce mm-hmm. tim's got to be in there oh yeah yeah uh darwin cook uh you know and and uh uh, that's just off the top of my head right now. There's so many popping in. They're like, well, why didn't you say this guy and this guy? Uh, but uh, that's like asking – almost asking like, which kid do you like best? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <yeah. laughs>
0: and that was the thing. Like I said, I got 11 people responded with 14 different names, and I can't complain about any of them. And no. like, there were still names that forgot. Like nobody said George Perez. He might not be yeah. known for doing Batman, but he does a pretty good Batman,
2: mm-hmm. and yeah. so
0: yeah. And I think that that's a strength of the character, and that's something that we will definitely benefit from going forward. Uh, is looking at some of the wonderful artists. Maybe not the next one we talk about on episode three. <laughs> we <laughs> might have some uh, some issues with the art in that issue, but beyond that, we're going to be in uh, in a little
1: bit better company yeah but that artist in in question probably is on somebody's list because he's had a he's got a pretty famous connection to Batman, he so does. you know
0: and as an inker i I have no problem with him, but uh, yeah. when he pencils his own stuff it's it works for a particular style. I don't think it was best for the well well I're forwarding too much. we'll talk about that yeah. in the next one so. <laughs> uh, any final thoughts on this episode before we wrap up?
1: You can probably find this issue in its many reprints <laughs> somewhere. I'm thinking. I don't know what this goes for nowadays, but uh, you know, there's at least two hidden reprints of this thing. So uh, you know, go out and find it. It's it's if you're looking for a fun bat distraction or you're you know you're you're needing to compile all the legends uh issues aren't they printing the legends trade paperback that's got all the I the believe, uh, tie-ins
0: i believe so they advertised it a while ago but i haven't heard about it that they were supposed to be a legends companion that collects the tie-ins they were talking about that a couple months ago but i i don't know if it's still if it's still on the books or not
1: it's so hard to keep up because they they announce all these books and and then half of them never come out Right, it's yeah. it's kind of bad, you know. I guess they just they go by you know orders, and if they don't get the orders, they don't print them, which I guess is better than you know taking a loss on a bunch of books nobody bought. But it's
0: Amazon has listed a Tales of the Batman by Jerry Conway collection, and I've pre-ordered that, so I hope it comes out. Yeah. Uh, I think it's scheduled for next summer, at some point. But nice, um, I'm gonna have I'm to get that, on that out, one too because so, I, I yeah. don't I don't want them to skip on that because that's gonna have some amazing stuff. First appearances of Jason Todd, Killer Croc. I, I mm-hmm. think that'll be a good one.
1: Yeah, that will be a good one. It'll, it, it'll be good to have Batman, I mean, Detective 526 in a nice format, you know, a nice page, all that lovely Don Newton artwork, so.
0: Amazon still has the listing for Legends Companion paperback uh, scheduled for, to come out on Amazon March 7th, 2017, which means oh, it, might, it might be in comic stores as early as like, uh, like February 21st or 28th.
1: Oh, okay. So. So, well, if you, can, if, you, if you can't find it in the back issue bins, wait till that comes out, and then you can read it there.
0: <laughs> Batman Nightcast is a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Feedback for this show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Batman Nightcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01 or email me at rdailypodcast at gmail.com.
1: You can find me, Chris, on Twitter at supermatespod or email me at supermatespodcast.gmail.com. This podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics and the views expressed here belong solely to us. All music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Everybody-